He is risen. He is risen. Say you like it, you mean it. He is risen. Amen. Welcome to Paramount. If you're a guest with us this morning, I want to especially welcome you and tell you how glad we are that you're here. Uh, you are here at an exciting time in the life of our church. Um, we see God on the move here at Paramount. And uh, from my vantage point, uh, I, I want to just share with you three snapshots of where I'm seeing God at work right now. Number one, we're seeing people come to faith in Jesus. And uh, just last week, four people gave their lives to Christ. And that, folks, is what it's all about, is seeing life change, seeing people give their lives over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Another snapshot that I see right now from my vantage point is that um, in the weeks leading up to Easter, to today, we've been trying to take the biggest mission offering for North American missions that our church has ever taken. We've been taking an offering for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American missions. This is an offering uh, that Southern Baptist churches all across the country, 45,000 churches, take up every year. And uh, we take this offering to give to new church starts in 32 strategic cities all over the country that are highly unchurched. And our church-wide goal this year is $25,000. And uh, Paramount family, as of last Sunday, we've raised over $31,000 for North American Missions. And so God is at work. And I'll tell you, every dollar that's given to Annie Armstrong, and none of it comes to Paramount, we send all of that on to start new churches. And if you haven't been able to participate uh, yet, there is still time. Today is the day that we're taking that offering for North American Missions. And then finally, the third snapshot I see from my vantage point of where God's at work right now has to do with what's going to happen next Sunday. Next Sunday is Vision Sunday, where I will cast a vision for the future of our church. And we're going to have one combined service next Sunday, so don't come at 8.30. Actually, you might want to come at 8.30 to get a seat, okay? But uh, the service will start at 9.45. There will be no small groups Uh, Next Sunday, we'll just have one combined service at 945, and if you want to know where Paramount Baptist Church is heading in the future, you'll want to be here next Sunday, so I want to invite you to be a part of that. You don't want to miss it. And then next Sunday night, you're invited to come back. We're going to have a church-wide extravaganza celebration palooza uh, over in our parking lot this direction. There's going to be games. There will be food trucks. If if you like food, I like food trucks, so if you want to come and have a a taco or a burger or whatever from a food trip, a f- food truck, then you can come. If you're not into that, you can bring your own dinner and bring a lawn chair, and we're going to have a great time as a church family just celebrating what God is doing. So God is at work, amen? So you're here at Paramount at a good time. Now, uh, this morning, we're concluding part one of a four-part series through the book of Romans. We're coming to the end of Romans chapter four this morning, and we're gonna take a break for the summer. We're gonna do three short series uh, from May to uh, the middle of August, and then in the fall, we'll pick up with Romans chapter five and continue the second part of our four-part Romans series. So if you have a copy of God's word, I'm gonna invite you to take it and open it to Romans chapter four. If you don't own a Bible, I wanna encourage you to feel free to use the Bible that is in the pew in front of you, and we'll be on page number 1,000 this morning. Today is Easter, and Christians have been celebrating this Sunday for 2,000 years the fact that 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish ultimately, but will have eternal life. And as the church body gathered, not just in this place, but in all over the city and all over the state, all over the country, and literally all around the world, we stand at the end of a long line of people who have believed for 2,000 years that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and he rose from the grave, literally, bodily. He didn't swoon, he actually died, and then he, he didn't just kind of manifest himself in some apparition, but that he literally, bodily, came back out of the tomb. And I want you to know that is a weird claim. I understand that that is a weird claim, that we believe a man lived, died, and now lives again. But we actually believe that. And if that didn't happen, then you can ignore everything I'm going to say this morning. You can walk right out of these doors, and uh, literally hundreds of millions of Christians have been deluded for 2,000 years, if it's not true. But if it is true, it changes everything. It, It demonstrates that Jesus has victory over sin, death, and hell. And that's what Easter is about. Satan, for three days, was throwing a party, thinking he had won. And Jesus became the ultimate party crasher when he walked out of the tomb and he defeated death. Now, Paul has been preaching this gospel throughout his letter to the church at Rome, and he's been arguing that the benefits of Easter, the forgiveness of sin, eternal life, a right standing before God. All of these benefits of the work of Christ are accessible to us not on the basis of our own merit. That is, there's nothing that we do to earn that or to deserve that, but it's based simply on the merit of what Jesus did for us in our place. All of those benefits can be yours simply on the basis of faith in Jesus and in the work of Jesus. It is by faith, Paul has been arguing, that we are made right with God. Now listen, to exercise faith means to exercise trust and dependence. It means to believe and to trust in, to rest in, that what Jesus did for you was enough to make you right with God. It's like if you sit in a chair and you pick your feet up, you are trusting your weight to that chair. You're trusting that that chair is strong enough to hold you up. Maybe more appropriately, Having faith is believing that you're sick, that you're going to die, but you trust, you believe that the medicine is going to work, and you put your faith in that. Now listen, trusting Jesus is recognizing that we are spiritually dead and that there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. We're very broken. But Jesus did what was necessary to make us right, to restore us to God, and all we have to do is rest in his work for us. Now in Romans chapter 4, Paul is going to elaborate on the importance of faith and the benefits of faith. And he's going to use Abraham from the Old Testament as an example for us. So this morning I want you to see just quickly four facts about faith. Four facts about faith. The first thing that the Apostle Paul is going to say is this. Faith gains the promise. Faith gains the promise. Pick up your Bibles and look with me in Romans chapter 4, beginning to verse 13. It says, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, 
that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath and where there's no law, there's no knowledge of sin or transgression. This is why the promise is by faith so that may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants. All right, well, what promise is Paul talking about? Paul says that God gave a promise to Abraham and that this promise was by faith. Well, stick your finger in Romans chapter four. Go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, all the way in the beginning of your Bible. And you're gonna wanna keep a finger in Genesis because we're gonna be there a couple of times. We need to do a little bit of Old Testament study to understand what Paul is referring to when he says that God gave Abraham a promise. What promise is Paul talking about? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, you have the promise. You have written in Genesis 12 a promise that God gave to Father Abraham. And this is what it says. Genesis chapter 12 and verse one. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who curses you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is something known as the Abrahamic covenant, or the promise that God made to Abraham. And and here's what the promise is. God promised a man named Abraham that he would bless him and that through Abraham that God would bless the nations. And God also promised Abraham and his descendants a land, a promised land, a a land to call their own. Paul refers to this in Romans four, keep your finger in, in Genesis chapter 12, but Paul back in Romans chapter four refers to this promise as a promise that Abraham would inherit the world. Now that's pretty big, that's a big promise. That God says, I'm gonna bless your socks off. Okay, that's the Andrew Standard Version. Of Genesis chapter 12. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm gonna bless your socks off. And I'm gonna bless the socks off of everybody who blesses you. And if anybody curses you, watch out. I'll curse them. That's pretty big. And I'm gonna bring you to a land, a land to call your own. Paul summarizes that by saying, God promised Abraham he would inherit the entire world. Now, on what basis was that promise given? Paul is going to address that very question. Paul says that this promise was not given to Abraham on his own merit. Paul says in verse 13, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, that is the keeping of the law, the works of the law, but it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. Here's what Paul is saying, God made a special big promise to this man named Abraham. But the reason that God made that promise to Abraham had nothing to do with how special Abraham was. In fact, we don't know that Abraham was special at all. We don't know much of anything about Abraham before God gave him this promise. If you read back in Genesis, you know that you know who his daddy's name is, you know who his granddaddy's name is, but really other than that, you don't know anything much about Abraham. He wasn't a pastor, he wasn't a theologian, we don't even really know that he was particularly righteous or outstanding in any number of ways. What we do know is that he was a businessman. We know he was a wealthy man. 
We know he was prominent in the land of Ur. That's a place, U-R, Ur. That's where he lived. But apparently, Abraham was a man of faith. He believed God. And the Bible says that God credited that belief, credited that faith to Abraham as righteousness. Not a special, outstanding individual, just ordinary. And that ought to speak to every one of us here. It doesn't matter who you are today. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a theologian or a business person or a teacher or a homemaker. Whoever you are, it doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States, it doesn't matter who you are, if you will be a person of faith, God has a promise for you. Now you say, I thought this promise was for Abraham, not for me. What relevance does this promise to Abraham, given in Genesis chapter 12, what relevance is that? How is that relevant to me? What relevance does that have for me? Well, this promise that God made to Abraham thousands of years ago is incredibly relevant to you. Let me go back to Genesis and point something out to you. Hopefully you stuck your finger there and kept it there. I didn't, so I'm gonna have to flip back. Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, God gives the promise to Abraham. God repeats his promise in Genesis chapter 15 and in Genesis chapter 17 and in Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, God gives a little more detail to the promise. And so I want you to look at Genesis chapter 22 and I want you to see God repeating the promise to Abraham but hear it with a little bit more detail. And, and there's a, a reason that I'm showing this to you because I wanna show you how this promise is relevant to you today. Genesis chapter 22, verse 15. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. This is the Lord's declaration. What that means is God swore by his own name. I'm swearing to this, God says, so help me, me. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you. You see that? That's a repetition of the Genesis 12 promise. I will bless you. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. So God says to Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to bring you into this land and I'm going to multiply you. In fact, look at the sky, the, the sky Abraham. Look at all those stars up there and, and look at all of the, the sand out there. Now listen, we don't have, uh, we, we've got a lot of beach out here, just no water. If you go out in a little, you can see a lot of sand out there. Look at all the little grains of sand all over the place. Look at how, how many there are. Abraham, I'm telling you that your, your descendants are going to be as numerous as those. And then he's going to tell us something else about the offspring of Abraham. Look at that in the middle of verse 17. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. You know what that means? It means that the offspring of Abraham will defeat their enemies. That's a pretty big promise. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, by your seed, by your descendant. You see that? How does God bring blessing to the nations through the family of Abraham? It's through a special descendant of Abraham. Through a special seed, a special descendant, a special offspring, one of Abraham's descendants would be very special and would be the one through whom God would bring blessing to every nation. Now, 
class on this Easter Sunday morning. Who do you think that that special seed, that special descendant would be? This is where the Sunday school answer is appropriate. (laughs) Jesus, yes, Jesus. You know the very first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament? You know what it says? It's a genealogy. Don't you love those? It's great if you're having a hard time sleeping at night, read a genealogy, all right? You'll get caught up on trying to pronounce the names and this and that, you'll just crash. Listen, genealogies are actually important. The genealogy of Jesus is very important and it starts, Matthew chapter one, verse one, it starts this way, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Now we read right over that because we're not thinking about the Abrahamic promise. But if you were a Jew and you read Matthew chapter one, verse one, you know what you're reading? You're reading a promise fulfilled. You're reading God saying to his people, this promise that I made centuries ago to bless the nations through a special descendant, the promise has now been fulfilled because Jesus is the seed, the descendant, the offspring, the son of Abraham. It is through Jesus that God brings blessing to the nations. Jesus is the one, by the way, who possesses the gate of his enemies. That's what Easter's about. Easter is about Jesus raiding enemy territory. Easter is about Jesus possessing the gates of the enemy, vanquishing, triumphing over the grave. This promise that God made centuries ago to Abraham is fulfilled to Jesus. So what relevance does the Abrahamic promise have to you? It is relevant in every way. It is relevant to you because Jesus is the one who destroys the enemy. Jesus is the one who blesses the nations. And by the way, Jesus is also the one who inherits the world. The promise was given to Abraham and descendants to inherit the world. Hebrews chapter one, verse one says that Jesus is the heir, the inheritor of all things. He owns it all. It's all coming to him. God brings to fulfillment the promise to Abraham through Jesus. And it's relevant to you because when God says he'll bless the nations, you're part of the nations. God blesses the nations through this special descendant of Abraham, Jesus, who destroys our greatest enemy, death. And you can receive the promise. You can gain the promise and the benefits of Jesus' work, just like Abraham did, through faith. Faith gains the promise. If you will believe what God has done for you in Jesus, you will receive the blessing that God brings to the nations. Faith gains the promise for Abraham and for you. Now here's the second thing I want you to notice, the second fact about faith from Romans chapter four, and that is this, that faith invites the nations. Faith invites the nations, and this is very important. Look down in verse 16. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Do you see that? The father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight in whom Abraham believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Look down in verse 23. Now it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him 
who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Listen, Paul's saying this, because our relationship with God is not based, is not based on Jewish law keeping, but on faith, and since faith is universally how people have a relationship with God, then both Jew and Gentile can be united as a family to God the Father through faith. Paul says he is the father of us all. He's the father of many nations. He, he's of those who believe also for us. What, what Paul is saying is this. He's making this point extremely clear. The benefits of the gospel are not for the Jews only. Now, some of you may have a Jewish background. For the majority of us, we probably don't have a Jewish background, and so we say, well, yeah, okay, that that makes sense to us. But listen, if we were in the first century and we were hearing this in a Jewish synagogue, this would be mind-blowing, right? Yes, Jesus was Jewish. Yes, his ministry was conducted in Israel. Yes, the gospel is good news for the Jew first. But Paul makes it clear that the benefits of Jesus' work are for the world. That he is the father of all who believe, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. Gentile would be anybody who's not a Jew, okay? Whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you believe in Jesus, you have the same father, which makes us siblings. It means your family is now an extended family. It means your family is red and yellow, black and white. All are precious in his sight. Faith invites the nations. Faith is for everyone, of every nationality, of every race, of every color. God, it's very clear in scripture, is moving the world to a very specific goal. Revelation, the book of Revelation tells us that God is redeeming for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. God is creating an international family whose common faith in Jesus is the tie that binds them to one another. Listen, if you're ever in a group of mixed races, like if you go to our ESL classes, you see people from 26 different nations in our ESL classes. You know, some people don't like that. Can you believe that in the year 2017 in the United States of America that somebody could walk into a room and not like that? It's true. But if you're not gonna like that, you're not gonna like heaven. Because that's what heaven looks like. God loves colors, that's why he created so many of them. If he loved one color, everybody would be one color. God loves all the colors, and, and God is creating an international family, which means this, that you are closer to someone from Africa or Asia or Latin America who has faith in Jesus than you are to your own flesh and blood relative who doesn't have faith in Jesus. I'm closer to an Iraqi brother who loves Jesus than I am to my own brother who doesn't love Jesus. Jesus redefines family. Faith invites the nations. If you've ever seen a piece of plywood, you look at the side of it, you see that there are all kinds of small separate sheets of wood with all kinds of variation of color that are glued together to become one piece of wood. Now that's the church. 
There's no such thing as a white church or a black church or a brown church. The church is the church. And we are one body that is made up of different people of varying color, all separate but united together by our faith. And Jesus, folks, is the glue. Amen? Faith invites the nations. That's the second thing Paul tells us about it, that that through faith, Abraham becomes the father of many nations, the father of us all, Jew or Gentile. All right, here's the third thing about faith. Faith believes the impossible. Faith believes the impossible. That's what Paul is going to tell us in Romans chapter 4. Look with me down in verse 17. Paul says, uh, as it is written, let's see here, where am I? Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, that is Abraham, believed, hoping against hope so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. All right, what in the world is Paul talking about? Well, if you remember the story of Abraham, you remember God gives the promise to Abraham, right? I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna bless the nations through you, I'm gonna multiply your offspring. There was only one problem. Abraham was an old geezer. That's also the Andrew Standard Version. You can just write that in the margins, old geezer. Abraham was old, and his wife was barren. So imagine being Abraham, and God says, you're 100 years old, and you're going to have a baby. Surprise! <laughs> you remember what Sarah did? She laughed. She laughed. Are you kidding, God? Right? But Abraham believed. Now, he had moments of doubt, Undoubtedly. But ultimately, if you zoom out and look at the big span of his life, Abraham believed God. He believed God could do it. He he didn't consider the deadness of his body. That means he was too old. That's what that means. Or the deadness of Sarah's womb. That means she she was barren and she was old. He didn't consider that. No, he knew that God gives life to the dead. And he calls into existence things that do not exist. Verse 20, Paul says, he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise. Look at this. But he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Look, look, look. Because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Somebody, you you need to circle that, underline it, asterisk it, make it your life verse. What God promises, God is able to do. For a son to be born to Abraham at 100 years old with a wife whose womb was dead, impossible. But Abraham knew that nothing is impossible with God, an old woman conceived. Faith believes the impossible. Israel, kept in captivity for hundreds of years in Egypt, they knew escape was impossible. But it's not impossible with God. A people was delivered faith believes the impossible. A widow who had a son who'd gotten sick and died knew that it was impossible for her ever to see him again. But Elijah the prophet knew that nothing is impossible with God. And a little boy walked again. Faith believes the impossible. A young virgin girl 
named Mary knew that it was impossible for her to be pregnant because she had never been with a man. But an angel appeared to Mary and in the Gospel of Luke said, nothing is impossible with God. And a baby named Jesus was born to a virgin mother. Faith believes the impossible. A crowd of 5,000 people gathered out in the wilderness to hear what they thought was a young prophet. And it was dinner time, and they were miles from anywhere and getting hungry. A young boy had a few fish and a few pieces of bread and said, here's what I've got. The crowd knew it's impossible to feed 5,000 with just a few fish and just a few loaves. But God does the impossible. He multiplied that and fed the crowd. Faith believes the impossible. Nothing's impossible with God. An older woman, like Sarah, had been sick for 12 years. She went to every doctor she could go to. She spent every dime she had on medical help trying to be healed and knew after 12 years it was impossible. But she saw Jesus walking through the crowd one day and she reached out and thought, if I could only touch the hem of his robe, I can be healed. Nothing is impossible with God. Faith believes the impossible. And the woman who had been sick for 12 years with the touch of Jesus' robe was well. A group of disciples gathered 2,000 years ago around a cross outside the city of Jerusalem looking at a man who had changed their lives, hanging lifelessly on a cross. They knew that all of the things that they believed that he would do, forgive their sins, give them eternal life, rescue the world, all of it was now impossible. But three days later, the God of the possible did the impossible. Three days later, God, who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist, God, the God of Abraham, who was fully convinced that what God had promised, God was certainly able to do, God raised his son from the dead, and the impossible became possible. Listen, faith believes the impossible. Faith looks at things that to a naturalist, someone who believes that the only real things are things that are seen, would never make sense. But we look with eyes of faith and we see God at work and we believe that God can do whatever God wants to do. Faith believes the impossible. Let me ask you this morning, what's your impossible? What's the impossible that you need to believe God for? Do you believe that you have so sinned and so failed that it is impossible for God to forgive you, God makes the impossible possible. Do you believe it's impossible that, 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 faith, that, that, that faith in Christ could come to that wayward son or daughter or that broken neighbor or coworker that they would never give their lives to Christ, that it's impossible? Listen, God makes the impossible possible. Do you, you believe that you have so messed up in your marriage, your, your marriage feels miserable and you'll doubt you'll make it to the end, God makes the impossible possible. Listen, folks, next Sunday I'm gonna cast a vision for our church. Some of what I say you might hear and say, 
that's impossible. But listen, God makes the impossible possible. Faith believes the impossible. Faith says all things are possible with God. Now, just finally before we close, there's one final thing that Paul says about faith. We've seen that faith gains the promise. Faith invites the nations. Faith believes the impossible. But here's the last thing that Paul says about faith. Faith centers on the gospel. Faith centers on the gospel. Look down in verse 22. Verse 21, Abraham was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited for him, was not written for Abraham alone. It was also written for us. It will be credited, that is righteousness, right standing before God will be credited to us. Look at this. Who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This passage speaks to faith's object. All of the benefits of the promise, all of the work of Christ, all of the impossible possibilities can be yours if, if, if you center your faith in the gospel. Listen, culture tells us to have faith in all kinds of things. If you just listen, you'll hear people saying, have faith in me, like the government. (laughs) And that's how we react, right? (laughs) Trust us. Let us handle the mail. We'll get that right. Let us handle driver's licenses. We'll get that right. Let us handle your health insurance. Oh, wait, hang on. We we better not go there. All right, trust us. Put your faith in us. You know what? You put the faith in government, government's going to let you down. Uh, there are other things that cry out for us to have faith in them. Uh, you'll hear people say, uh, have faith in the future. That things will get better and better and better. That utopia is coming. And the Bible says, no, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Here's what you hear at graduations all the time, and it's just like, Bleh. Uh Have faith in yourself. Believe in yourself. Uh, here's the way you'll, you'll hear it. Follow your heart. That's the worst advice you could ever give. Do not follow your heart. Your heart will lead you astray 100 out of 100 times. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know the answer to that? Ain't nobody can know their own heart. I don't know... I can't search out the motivations of my heart. The worst thing I could do is follow the impulses of my heart. I don't want to believe in myself. I don't want to have faith in myself. I will let myself down. Listen, there is one and one only object of faith that will never let you down, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Center your faith on him. Trust him. Paul says, if you will believe in In him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, God will credit that to you as righteousness. He, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus has done everything necessary to make you right with God. He died on the cross in your place to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. That's what the cross is all about. 
The cross ultimately was not a Jewish act or a Roman act. The cross was ultimately an act of God. Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Lord to crush him. The Father is the one who poured out his wrath for sin on his son Jesus at the cross in our place. Which means that if you find your shelter in Jesus, God has no more judgment for you. Jesus has received all of the judgment of God for our sin in our place. That's a good place for an amen. But the story doesn't end there. He was buried and stayed in the tomb for three days later and the Bible says that God raised him up for our justification. Jesus was raised back to life and that was God vindicating, verifying, validating the work of Jesus. You can think about, this, about it like this, that on the cross, Jesus paid for our sins. The cross was the payment for our sin. The resurrection was the receipt. David Garland said that the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he took the sting of death and absorbed all the poison. Isn't that good? Hebrews chapter two, verse nine says that Jesus tasted death for everyone. That's why uh, Miss Georgia Kennedy from Hobbs is back with us this Sunday. She's just gonna become a regular, I think. Um, she's seen me do some funerals, and uh, at every funeral, the funeral home people always get a little agitated at me because I say, listen, folks, if you can, don't buy the coffin. Rent it. Because <laughs> you're not gonna need it forever. The resurrection of Jesus means that death is not the final word. Death is a comma, a dash. But we end with the exclamation point of life. John Donne, that great English poet, said, Death, be not proud. Death, thou too shalt die. That's what the resurrection of Jesus means. It means he has victory over the grave. And this is the object of our hope. Jesus and his work for us in the cross and the resurrection is the object of our faith. You can have faith in all kinds of things, but all kinds of things can let you down. There is nothing else that can hold the weight of your trust. If you put your trust in your spouse, your ultimate faith is resting at that point in the emotional security of your spouse. So what happens when your spouse lets you down? If your faith is in the financial security of your wealth, of your job, then what happens when you lose your job and your 401k takes a hit when the market drops? If your faith is in the physical security of your health, then what happens when you get sick? Listen, make Jesus the object of your faith. He will never let you down. He will never let you go. He'll hold on to you to the very end and you will have eternal spiritual security because he can hold the weight of your hope and the trust of your heart. In the year 2000, a steel suspension bridge was built near the River Thames in London. It was called the Millennium Bridge. It took two years to build and it could hold the weight of 5,000 people at one time. And this was supposed to show the marvel and the ingenuity of the coming millennium. And so opening day came and they opened the Millennium Bridge in London and people started going out onto the bridge and you know what the bridge started to do? It started to wobble, big time. It started to wobble so much that the people on the bridge thought that the bridge would collapse. 
And so the, the grand opening, after two years of work, on the Millennium Bridge, opening day, they had to close the bridge. And they tried again the next day with fewer people. And you know what the bridge did? It wobbled again. So they closed it for two more years while they tried to fix the problem. But if you go to London today and you ask what the, where the Millennium Bridge is, you know what they'll say? Oh, you mean the Wobbly Bridge? <laughs> the name is stuck. There are all kinds of wobbly bridges that we can give our life to, that we can trust our weight to. Listen, Jesus is a sturdy bridge that allows you to cross the chasm of your sin into a relationship with God. Do not rest your weight on a wobbly bridge. Rest your weight in Jesus. And on this Easter Sunday, I, I ask you, if you've never given your heart and life to Christ, why not today? Would you trust in him? Would you trust in his work for you? Would you experience all that God has for you by faith? In just a moment, we're going to sing, and it, this is a, a time of response for you to respond to the word of God. You say, I want to have that kind of faith. I want to believe the impossible. And if you'll do that, God will change your life. What better day than today? In a moment as we sing, I'm going to pray. And as we sing, we'll stand together. There will be pastors here at the front. If you'd like to give your life to Jesus and experience this kind of faith, you can step out from wherever you're seated and come and tell a pastor, come, come and say, I want to trust in Jesus. I want to lean the weight of my life on him. You can come and speak with a pastor about that. You come if God is calling you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We believe it to be true. We believe that you are the God of the impossible. And on this day as we celebrate what we actually believe, that you sent your son who died for us and then came back to life, defeating death. I pray that if there's anyone in the room today who's never given their life to him, that today would be the day. Help us who know Jesus to celebrate him today, but help those who don't know him to give their lives to him. Holy Spirit, you do the work in the heart to draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.